30 years, is that right? Close to it? More, more than 30, 30. And uh, uh, is, a, is a fixture in our community and in the greater Memphis area. And uh, it, in these uh, trying times that we have, we had already invited uh, Micah here uh, to speak about, and, uh, about anti-Semitism, and then all of the other things have happened in the meantime. And so it is timely that uh, Micah is here with us. Micah is well-respected in all of the community and uh, I know has visited here before. And Micah, it is an honor for us to have you with us today. I know that you're on a strict schedule this morning and you're gonna have to slip out by about 9.15 to 9.20. And so we're going to honor that. And I invite you, I want to just say welcome on behalf of Germantown United Methodist Church. And thank you for being here. Let's show our appreciation. Shalom, y'all. Uh, I'm looking for the letter from your senior pastor, Reverend Carpenter. Let's hear it for Reverend Carpenter. And Reverend Alper, he invited me so long ago, and I hesitate to say this, but it's okay since I'm in a sanctuary, I can confess. <laughs> I don't know of a place where I feel more at home. I, I get out of my car, I see Rick and Jane Kirchhoff, who I went to Israel with, I see Larry and Mary grow. I see Reverend Carpenter. I see the teacher of my child from kinder music and my, my, my children's advisors from school. So I just want to applaud uh, the GUMC family. Um, yeah, I'm so old. I go back to Martha. Uh, any of you know what that means? <laughs> Reverend Wagley? Right. Okay. Some of you weren't born. <laughs> but before... Israel was declared a state in 1948. Chaim Weitzman, Israel's first president, uh, he was an Englishman and he was a teacher at the University of Manchester and he was asked by a member of the British government before Israel was declared a state, Professor Weitzman, why do you not simply forget the land of Israel and ask your Jewish people to find refuge in some other land, say in Africa, which would be easier for all of us in the world. And Chaim Weitzman's answer was simple. And I can't do his British accent. He said, sir, that would be like my asking you why you drove 30 miles into the country to visit your mother when there are so many other lovely old ladies on your street. <laughs> the point is that your home, your church home, your own faith are not simply matters of convenience. Uh, they're yours and the connection goes deep. I'm going to talk about what Reverend Carpenter asked me to in a little while, anti-Semitism. But given what's happened since October 7th, I just want to say that um, my attachment to Israel is not political. 
Uh, Israel is the living embodiment of the idea that the Jewish people are a people, not just a belief system. Israel is a place where people fight to death with each other every day, but will fight to death for each other if they have to. And Israel is the only place in the world where you feel at home as a Jewish person and hopefully a Christian person and, yes, Muslim person um, from the moment you land, even if you've never been there before. So it's more than a piece of geography, even though you could fit the whole state of Israel in West Tennessee. That's right. America's 40 times the population size of Israel, and Israel's the size of Delaware. So when 242 people were kidnapped, that's like 13,000 Americans in one day. When 1,400 are beheaded, raped, butchered, burnt alive, that's like 56,000 Americans. And when 3,400 are wounded in hospitals, that's like 135,000, all in one day. Um, so Israel is more than geography, it's memory, it's Jewish cheers and triumphs, it's the direction that we pray as Jews, it's the subject of our prayers, and I just want to say um, why Christian support for Israel in Memphis matters to me, because in one sentence, the Jewish people and Israel have never felt more alone. Um, I haven't left my desk or my phone much since October 7th, helping terrified and traumatized Israeli friends, Zooming every day, Temple Israel college and high school students facing anti-Semitism like never before. Uh, it's been like providing psychological first aid 24-7. Uh, um, the existence of Israel herself is on trial as Jew hatred continues to rear its ugly head. Um, we all want the war to end. And yes, uh, both the victims in Gaza and the Israeli victims of Hamas break my heart. Um, one can support the Palestinian people, which I do, and still denounce the intentional slaughter of men, women, and children. Um, I pray for peace. I know you do too. Even in the face of an enemy bent on Israel's genocidal destruction, uh, Hamas was created to murder Jews. That's not a political statement. That's what they are. Uh, they were not created to bring about peace. After October 7th, uh, one of my 11-year-old Temple congregants' public school classmates was flashing the Nazi salute around school because teachers and administrators had not seen it. It took time to address what was happening. And it wasn't until a photo from a field trip with this child committing the salute as proof that swift and prompt action was taken. And while appreciative for the way in which it was addressed, um, I am paralleled by concern that the world is not listening to Jewish people and that our own children in the Jewish community are not being heard either. It gets worse for another temple child, um, a classmate of hers 
She's a fourth grader. The classmate had been hounding her since the second grade about coming to church with her, not as I would come to church with you, but this second grader to fourth grader was saying that you need to become a Christian. And she has since taken it up a notch by telling her that all Jews go to hell. This is a fourth grader. And because this boy and girl are Jewish, and because it's not been witnessed by teachers or administrators, my congregants have to teach their kids in fourth grade and fifth grade how to manage this on their own. And the parents in my congregation I'm running to at 1030 are rightly asking, what world is this? There have been many hatreds in human history, and they're all disgusting, but the hatred of Jews is unique. The hatred of Jews is the most prolonged hatred in human history. It's been perpetrated by all groups. Communists call Jews fascists. Fascists call Jews communists. It didn't matter what Jewish people actually were. They were the scapegoats hated in most societies in which they live and even in places where there are no Jews. Some of the worst anti-Semitic literature in the 20th century was produced in Japan. And there are no Jews there except American expats. Ditto for the Arab world where over 800,000 Jews used to live. 800,000 Jews in Arab lands until they were despised, persecuted, and expelled. Follow this sentence with me. You cannot live among us as Jews. That led to the forced conversion of Jews in churches in Spain and other places where Jews lived. And that sentence was shortened from you cannot live among us as Jews to you cannot live among us. So then Jews were forced into ghettos with appalling conditions. And there were even neighborhoods in Memphis where Jews um, were not allowed to live. Um, finally, it, it got shortened even more from you cannot live among us as Jews to you cannot live among us. The Nazis and Hamas took the ultimate leap of evil from you cannot live among us to you cannot live. The Hebrew word, we often use the word holocaust, but the Hebrew word shoah in the Bible um, means calamity. The English word holocaust means burnt offering or sacrifice to God. The Jews of Europe in the 1930s and 40s were not sacrificed. They were murdered. And there's a tremendous difference, which is why the word Shoah takes that difference seriously. Similarly, the Israelis on October 7th were not killed. They weren't even murdered. They were beheaded, raped, tortured. Uh, and among the many lessons, I think, that, that we've learned from the Shoah and the Bosnian War in the 90s, which was perpetrated against Muslims, or um, in Rwanda. Um, what we learn is that war is sometimes necessary, even though it's always hell. But intentionally murdering innocent people is never justified.
Um, and so the religious imperative arising from terrorism is not only to fight it, but to take it seriously. There's no need to justify rape or condone evil or burning babies alive. We don't need to explain that kind of evil. We only need to condemn it. Because if we don't, the message sent is you can get away with it. It's often noted that anti-Semitism begins with the Jews, but never ends with them. And there's much evidence for this. I think Christians should not be spurred to action only because Christians may be next, but because anti-Semitism is evil, not an abstract evil, like uh, talking about evil in a sermon, but an evil very much in our midst. And the Christian response to this moment, I think, should begin with an honest inquiry into Christian anti-Semitism and the toleration of anti-Semitism. Among the reasons that the problems of the Jews are Christian problems is because if you haven't read Constantine's Sword um, by James Carroll, you'll learn that the seeds of anti-Semitism were planted by the church. Thank God, not anymore. It's going to end on a very happy note, especially because of the Methodist Church. But going way back, Jesus the Jew, who was crucified by the Romans, was morphed into Jesus the Christian, murdered by the Jews. Perhaps the biggest task today is to combat indifference. The silence of bystanders is what enables anti-Semitism to metastasize. Silence, as Elie Wiesel said, silence never helps the tormented. It only encourages the tormentor. 60% of hate crimes in America are committed against Jews, even though Jews only comprise 2% of the population. 60% of the hate crimes, though are perpetrated against Jews. So the most urgent, uh, the most shameful, the most disgraceful, the most tragic problem is silence. Silence is compliance. Where are we in moments of moral conscience? Most of us are quietly bothered by it, but we're silent. Jews have suffered for thousands of years simply for being Jewish, not because anything they did was wrong, but because of the evil behavior and the wrong thinking of those who persecuted them. Hate, anger, intolerance, evil. Anti-Semitism is a virus that mutates, yet it is a prejudice like other prejudices, a hatred of Jews, but it's also a conspiracy theory that hidden Jews are all-powerful, control the media, the banks, the levers of government on the left and on the right. Anti-Semitism often manifests itself in a nefarious belief in a worldwide Jewish conspiracy that wields outsized power. On the right, the language is globalists, Hollywood elites. George Soros. On the left, the code words are Zionists, oppressors. 
Um, most are unaware of the unadulterated evil spewed by famous Americans like Henry Ford of automobile fame. You may not know this, but Henry Ford attributed all evil to Jews. Here is a, a diary entry on a camping trip that Ford took with his friend in 1919. Quote, the Jews caused the war. The Jews caused the outbreak of thieving and robbery all over the country. The Jews caused the inefficiency of the Navy. Throughout the Dearborn Independent, Ford published articles that would refer to Jews in every possible context as the root of America and the world's ills. Strikes, it was the Jews. Financial scandal, the Jews. Agricultural depression, the Jews. So the Jew, in a way, became the symbol of a world that was being manipulated and controlled. This conspiracy theory, Ford was its orchestrator. He even republished the notorious forgery protocols of the elders of Zion, which claims that a group of Jews got together and planned the fate of the world, be it financial catastrophe, global disaster, or war, just like today's fake news. Someone reading this forgery printed in the Dearborn Independent would take this to be a factual piece. Online, it's even worse. So while other small-town newspapers were publishing horrific anti-Semitic material before the internet, the Dearborn Independent was required reading in every Ford Motor dealership across America, from California and New York to Indiana and Florida. So what separates Ford from other people who are publishing anti-Semitic material, um, what, what separates him? It's no different than what Hitler was saying in his beer hall meetings in Munich um, at the same time. Um, I don't know if you know this, and I'll leave Henry Ford alone in a minute, but most people don't know this. He even received an award from the Nazis in 1938 called the Grand Cross of the German Eagle and was praised by Hitler himself. Now, the left in America doesn't know what to do with Jews because Jews don't fit the picture of traditional victims of prejudice. If uh, you look so secure and successful, what are you complaining about? So take the Jewish kid on scholarship in my class at Rhodes College where I teach. This student, she's also doing work on the side, um, so she won't graduate $100,000 in debt. And she is a white Jewish girl, and she has to justify that she's not privileged. With prejudice against other groups, this lack of privilege is taken at face value. Jews may present as educated and financially secure even though many Jews are not. And people presume that all Jews are white when, as Rick and Jay know, when we went to Israel, most Jews in Israel are darker skinned. They're Asian, African, not just European. Um, Anti-Semitism is also different because with other prejudices, people simply look down on that race or that group. But anti-Semites 
punch down and punch up simultaneously. They look down on Jews and see them as lesser human beings, dirty Jews, and they look up and see Jews as more powerful, as conniving, as a threat to the anti-Semites' well-being, replacing America. And yet, here's the strange fact, in contemporary America, many people admire Jews. Intermarriage rates are high. Jews did not intermarry um, because Christians wouldn't accept Jews. So how do you make sense of this? Jews are much admired, less than 2% of the population, still amazing accomplishments. Sometimes that admiration, though, can turn on a dime into hostility. So the big mistake we make in our thinking about anti-Semitism is not to take it seriously. The current state of anti-Semitism isn't different from past iterations in the stereotypes and accusations, as I said, that Jews control the media, the banks, Hollywood, the election process. What's different today is the delivery system called the internet. You can now spread hate everywhere instantly. Zionism, denotes a movement forged in the late 19th century and evolving ever since for the existence of a Jewish homeland in the land of Israel with borders to be decided. Critics of Israel, anti-Semites too, often use Zionists to assert a global power structure without specifically calling out Jews as the masterminds. So anti-Zionism has become code for Jew hatred. How do we draw a line between legitimate criticism of Israel? And I'm no fan of Bibi Netanyahu, the sooner he goes, the better. But how do we draw a line between criticism of Israel and anti-Semitism? Criticism of Israeli policy is not anti-Semitism, just like Criticism of American policy is not anti-Americanism. But when you begin to ascribe to Israel anti-Semitic characteristics that the Jewish state is all-powerful, that it is rich, conniving, and all you have to do is take out the word Israel and put in Jew, then you're on the slippery slope to Jew hatred. If you question the right of Israel to exist because it's a Jewish state, but fail to question the right of Islamic states to exist because of their religious identity, you have to wonder why. There are 22 Islamic states, and nobody questions their right to be an Islamic state, and there's only one Jewish state, and you question its right to exist. Why is that? Some people say that Israel does not have a right to exist because it chased out an indigenous population. Um, there's a big debate about that, but let's say for the moment that Jews displaced um, the indigenous population. What about the United States and Native Americans? What about Canada and the First Nations? What about Australia and the Aboriginal people? Uh, this is not meant to justify any of these things. It's awful. I I'm simply asking the question, why in this one case do they say Israel doesn't have a right to exist and not these other countries? 
When you hold Israel to a different standard, when you subject it to this singular focus and ignore all the others, then you have to ask, where is that coming from? Another reason why those who are not Jewish who care about anti-Semitism is that anti-Semitism has never led to good things for society at large. One out of every three Jews in the world was murdered by the Nazis, and had the Germans won the war, they were ready to eliminate lots of other people. They called them untermenschen, subhumans, Ukrainians, Slavs, Mongols. Anti-Semitism injects hatred into society. It injects contempt into society and distrust. It breeds no good. Just last week, talk about double standards. The Arab and Islamic states, they met. They did not condemn Hamas. They condemned Israel. Only Israel. And among the voters was Syria's Bashar Assad, who has murdered hundreds of thousands of his own people. And here they are condemning Israel only and not this radical Islamist group. The story's coming out of Israel every day. There's another story, not just about the rape and the burning of families and the beheading of babies. Um, and all Israel wants to do is be able to go to sleep tonight and to reassure their citizens that this will not happen to them again. Legitimate criticism of Israel's policies is important, but it's a slippery slope to her right to exist. Over a decade ago, I attended a meeting of local religious leaders who were once a part of the Memphis Ministers Association I led in the 1990s. Um, beauty of your congregation is that it's gone from strength to strength with your leadership. This is the bar mitzvah year of Rick Kirchhoff. Uh, he's been retired 13 years. He served 13 years. So we'll have his bar mitzvah party later. Um, Adam Sandler's daughters actually made a movie about that. But um, in the 1990s, um, the issue was that citizens of Shelby County, um, actually it was in the 2000s, I think it was when Rick was here, um, citizens of Shelby County who happened to be gay or lesbian had no legal protection from being fired. So at our minister's meeting, um, a Christian minister who happened to be gay said that he was going to address the, the discrimination ordinance before the Shelby County Commission at the commission's next meeting. And I stood up and said, no, I'll do it. Enough of you having to defend yourself for who you are, brother. I said, gay bashing will only end when straight people stand up and speak out. The only hope for the world that our Judeo-Christian tradition envisions is if we are willing to speak out for the other beyond our own religion, beyond our own self, beyond our own political party, beyond our own group. So in my seven-minute plea to the Shelby County elected officials, I said, I understand opposition to gay marriage, but it's beyond me how any of you would vote against 
equal legal protection for all people in Shelby County. And that's what you would be doing in denying gay people equal protection under the law. I'm not gay, that's why I'm here, because this is not a gay issue any more than racism in the 1960s was a black issue. Racism wasn't about black America. It's about what whites did to blacks in America. And similarly, I continued, anti-Semitism has nothing to do with Judaism. Anti-Semitism is about what baptized Christians, extremist Muslims, others who are not Jewish have done to hurt, maim, and persecute Jews. My point, commissioners, gays should not be held accountable for a vote to stop discrimination against them. It's the rest of us who aren't gay who must stand up and speak out against legal bigotry without getting into anything about your religious beliefs regarding marriage. The defeat of all forms of hatred including anti-Semitism, will only happen when anti-Semitism, racism, Islamophobia, homophobia are viewed as part of a larger cancer that must be stopped. Good news regarding Christian anti-Semitism. More has been accomplished in our lifetime than the preceding 1,800 years. According to the old theology, Jews had been the chosen people until they failed to recognize Jesus as the Christ. The church saw itself as the new Israel and the suffering of Jews as a sign of God's displeasure with his formerly elect people. Catholics and Protestants needed to make Jews see the light, and when they did, the Jews' suffering would come to an end. Thank God in our lifetime, in large measure because of mainline churches like the United Methodist Church, a new theology has begun to replace the old. According to the new theology, Jews remain the chosen people of God and are not to be moved away from Judaism as groups like Messianic Judaism, Jews for Jesus, strive to do. Why? Because the gifts of God are irrevocable. It's the survival of the Jewish people as Jews, not their suffering, that is a sign of God's faithfulness to God's people. And again, the Methodist Church is at the forefront of this new theology. Jews are still understandably upset by the belief among some other Christians that God has discontinued working through Judaism and the Jewish people. So when missionaries, for instance, say, we abhor anti-Semitism. They don't realize that trying to convert Jews away from Judaism leads to the same result of burning Jews in the crematoria of Auschwitz. What's the same result? The end of Judaism. Would it really be the triumph of God? A rabbi on his deathbed asked his lifelong Christian minister friend, would it really be the triumph of God that there be no more Judaism in the world? Would it really be the triumph of God if our Hebrew prayers, which Jesus himself prayed, were no more recited? Would it really be the glory of God to have the Passover Seder no more celebrated for its Jewish message and the law of Moses no more observed in Jewish homes? Would it really be the triumph of God to have a world without Jews? I think all stereotypes are wrong, so I don't mean to paint all evangelicals with the same brush. In fact, one prominent evangelical has said 
The only legitimate approach we Christians can make to the Jewish people today is on our knees. We have a tragic 1900-year history as Christians of persecution, exclusion, barbarism, forced conversion, killing and maiming to answer for, to repent for, to make amends for, and to accept responsibility for. The Protestant and Catholic Church both played major roles in preparing the soil for the Holocaust, which was largely implemented by blissful Christians who were baptized and taught in the church. The New Testament is about many things, principally God's covenant with humanity through faith in Christ, and that's a good thing. But New Testament books are also laced with person-to-person stereotypes of Jews that still run shudders down the spines of Jewish people today. Verses like Mark 6, whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue. When those words are heard by a good person who still practices Judaism in my synagogue, it's like a Native American hearing, don't be like those wild Indians. The New Testament books were written by men, almost all Jews, who believed that Jesus was the Israelite Messiah, and who also felt understandably threatened by the then much larger number of first and second century Jews who saw things differently. And one of their responses was to preach that Pharisaic Jews were hypocrites, blind fools, full of greed. It gets worse in Mark 14, Matthew 23 and 27, John 8, Galatians 3, Revelations 3, the litany of other anti-Jewish passages in the New Testament. Can Christianity be purged of 1,900 years of anti-Semitism without changing the Gospels? I definitely think so. Because what separates Jews and Christians is the Christ of faith, not the Jesus of history. The New Testament, not as a faith document, but as a historical record, chronicles both the in-house fight of first century Jews, it's like you're reading an in-house fight, and the early Jesus followers' more successful outreach to Gentiles in places like uh, Ephesia, Ephesus, Galatia, Corinth, Rome. In verses where Jesus speaks to his fellow Jews, he often sounds like members of my own Jewish family criticizing other Jews. Yet as my teacher, Dr. Amy Jo Levine um, from Vanderbilt teaches, when that material is repackaged into a gospel which is proclaimed to the Gentile church, internal family critique becomes external bigotry. For 25 years, I taught future ministers the long history of Christian anti-Semitism at Memphis Theological Seminary. And I would do exactly what Professor Levine did with her class at Vanderbilt. After we studied the murder of entire European Jewish communities by mobs coming directly from churches on Good Friday, I would show my soon-to-be ministers this photo of my then young Jewish daughter, Kara, and son, Jake, and I would say, please, when you're a minister and quote the New Testament in your future pulpit, 
Please do not say anything that would incite your parishioners to hurt these children or that might lead a listener in your sanctuary to hurt them, even if it may never have occurred to you that these New Testament texts are what reinforce centuries of anti-Jewish prejudice. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, our words heard in church pews without ever being an offered an examination of who the Pharisees actually were based on so many other available ancient sources. There's a new book out called The Pharisees by Amy Jill Levine and Sievers, and they write, the canonical gospel's report concerning the Pharisees is pun intended taken as gospel. But no less than Pope Francis recently said, one of the oldest and most damaging stereotypes is precisely that of Pharisee used to put Jews in a negative light. To love our neighbors better, we need to understand and overcome ancient prejudices. The Pharisees were the early rabbis, rabbis like Hillel, who said, what is hateful to you, do not do to any person, the Jewish version of the golden rule. Pharisees were rabbis, rabbis are Jews, so Pharisee became code for Jew. And that meant in the Christian imagination that Jews were hypocrites. Now there's the excuse, but we're all Pharisees, we're all guilty of these crimes. It doesn't work very well since Christians in the pew historically always knew that they, unlike the Pharisees, were baptized members of the church, not so much the Jews. So it ends up happening is that the congregation confesses the sins of the Jews rather than their own sins. And then there's sermons rationalizing the gospel's anti-Jewish polemic, referring only to some Pharisees, since we have a few good ones like Nicodemus and um, Gamaliel. That doesn't work either, saying that only some in the mainstream Jewish community are money-loving, hypocritical, terrible people is like the last U.S. president saying that when Mexico sent Mexicans to invade America, they sent the rapists, criminals, drug lords, and a few good Mexicans too. Ironically, one of the early architects of my own Jewish reform movement argued that the Pharisees, who opposed the upper priestly Sadducee class, were the spiritual progenitors of Reform Judaism. He argued that um, Jesus was himself a Pharisee, making each Jew equal to a priest and each home equal to a temple. That was the Pharisaic idea. Now, as we all know, the backlash to my German Reform heritage was, no, Jesus wasn't a Jew. He was the Nazi mutation of theological anti-Judaism, a racial anti-Semitism promoting an Aryan Jesus, where Jesus the Christian was purified of so-called Jewish blood. Point is, when you conflate anti-Jewish passages in the New Testament, and I haven't even talked about the Quran, it's worse, with today's mainstreaming and normalization of casual anti-Semitism, there's additional reason to be on guard and not be silent. Remember Kanye West's tweet of Hitler's greatest hits to the White House, 
dining with a rabbit's anti-Semite and insisting afterward that there's nothing bad about that? What am I saying in one sentence? The arc of history, when left unchecked, bends as much toward hatred as it does towards justice. With all due respect to King's quote. So, whether it's social anti-Semitism, which means Jews can't join this club or this neighborhood, or economic anti-Semitism, those Hollywood Jews, the tech elites, George Soros, the bankers, whether it's religious anti-Semitism, Jesus, king of the Jews, is turned into Jesus murdered by Jews. Whether it's political anti-Semitism, Henry Ford, Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Whether it's anti-Semitism in the media, technology makes practical things easier, but media and social media have been a destructive force. As we watch orderly societies march for the destruction of Jews, and by the way, those protests in Europe and even in America and in Montreal, they weren't just saying death to Israel, they were saying death to the Jews. May God help us and may we help God bring about the world our Christian and Jewish traditions pray for, believe in, and labor toward a world filled with love, not hatred, light, not darkness, justice, not terror, and God, we pray moral clarity over the justification of evil. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I, thank you for, for coming out this morning. I have till 10.20 to run back to my Sunday school. So I'll take a few questions and we will end at exactly 10.20. Reverend Carpenter, is that okay? Please. I think to name anti-Semitism um, for what it is and to speak out as Christians. Um, Again, I won't repeat myself, but rape, for instance, is not a woman's problem. It's generally a man's problem. So until men speak out for stopping domestic violence and against women, and I would say the same thing. Um, I, I'm tired of hearing Jews defend Israel. <laughs> uh, or, or Jews trying to point out what anti-Semitism is. Anti-Semitism has nothing to do with Judaism. It's what other people do to Jews. So, um, Please, uh, there are others of you who had questions. Oh, um, especially in the balcony. You deserve credit. You sure? You want to think another minute or so? Uh, I'm glad I prepared hard for this. Otherwise, it would have been a long 40 minutes. We pause now for the silent meditation. Actually, um, I don't know if Reverend Carpenter saw this, but I saw a cartoon, and the minister gets up in front of his Methodist church, and he says, 
We pause now for a moment of silent texting. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. Micah, thank you so much, and we, we are honored that you uh, came and spoke to us today. We take your words with great humility and great thanksgiving for your visit with us, and uh, we leave here, I think, strengthened by this time with you and um, pledge ourselves to, uh, to follow your advice. Thank you so much for coming. invite you to stand. And we'll be dismissed until uh, time for the next service. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go forth. Amen. <laughs>